remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, this will be our fourth message on Jesus and the rich young ruler. Let's ask the Lord's uh, blessing and for his enlightenment, and then let's read from Scripture. Let's pray first. Now, gracious Father, it is in Jesus that we come to you seeking understanding, seeking light, Lord, seeking knowledge from your word that you might come now in this message this morning through this very fallible servant and teach us your ways, Lord. Unfold and open up for us, Lord, the bankruptcy of religion without Christ. Help us to see that it's a vain thing, Lord, to pursue goodness apart from grace. So, Father, as we continue to look at this text, as Christians, Lord, those who are here this morning that have a relationship with you, Lord, entrench in them, Lord, your grace and mercy and love and how it flows out of them into the obedience of your word. But Lord, if there's any here this morning that has not come to that place of grace, Lord, has not come to that place of repentance of sin, Lord, that remains in the bondage of sin and in the grips of the devil, Lord, deliver them. Set them free. Lord, release them and show them, the Lord, your sweetness and the way of grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You, now, beloved, I want to begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When he but when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they heard it, and they who heard it, that, well, then who can be saved? And he said, these, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, I've entitled last week's message, and this is part two of last week, the bank are really the failure of the religious. The rich young ruler is a picture of what religious failure looks like. And I want to first thing in this message to make some clarifications 
hopefully clearing up some of the things that I don't think I said clearly last week and then certainly finish the points I was making last week. The first thing that I want to address is this concept, this idea that's very, that's alive and well today among Christians, and that is, well, we're not for religion. We are about relationships. It's a relationship with Jesus that matters, not religion. And upon first hearing, it really sounds spiritual. I mean, it sounds good. And there is a, a modicum of truth in it. But beloved, we need to understand something. Yes, you can be very religious and never possess Jesus Christ. The rich young ruler is a picture of this reality. However, to think that you can possess Jesus and have a relationship with him and not be religious is an, well, it's fallacy. To possess Jesus is to be religious. We could turn to many passages of scripture, but I think the one that I want to bring to your hearing this morning is just John 15. If you would open your Bibles there to John 15. I think this passage of scripture clearly addresses this idea that to have a relationship with Jesus is not to separate us from the word of God. It's not to separate us from the commandments of God. It's not to separate us from our brotherly duties and responsibilities to one another, to him and one another. Let's begin reading at verse one of certainly identifying the relationship. Jesus identifies this relationship in these words. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear much or more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of it unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as, the branch, uh, as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. He who keeps my commandments, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just a couple of things about the passage of scripture because remember, I am just trying to address that mistaken confidence that, well, we don't need religion. And what most people mean by that is we don't need church. We don't need to gather and worship with our brothers and sisters. We can, you know, we can 
We can recreate. We can do a number of things because I have a relationship with Jesus and that's all that counts. Well, again, one of the things that Jesus points out in this is, of course, we saw the abiding principle. If you really abide in me, what is it to abide in him? It's to abide in my word. If you abide in my word, you abide in my commandments. If you abide in my commandments, you abide in my love. If you do these things and I abide in you and you abide in me, just as I abide in my Father. Now, I don't think anybody would say Jesus was irreligious. What did Jesus do? That is, that is if we're to follow Jesus' example, right, by abiding in him, following him. He says, if you are my disciples, what's a disciple? A disciple is someone that follows another. That's what we are. We're followers of Jesus. If we are disciples of Christ, then we are followers of Christ. And what Jesus is saying, what Jesus says here is this. He goes, and I abide in my Father. I worshiped him. I glorified him. I, I performed his commandments. I sought for his glory. He, his will is my food and drink. Now you abide in me and you do the same. And you see, brothers, by this, it's impossible to separate Jesus from religion. Now, the question is, what religion do you possess or confess? Because, again, you can be religious and never know Jesus Christ. Now, and I mean, we can certainly say that's true of those outside the church in those heretical situations. But, I mean, let's focus of the ones inside the true church. Those who are outwardly religious, but don't possess Christ as their savior. So that's the first thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to, I wanted to clarify. I don't, I don't like it. It makes me cringe when I hear um, Christians say, well, I'm not religious. I, I, it's about a relationship. I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, to have a, you know, again, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you will be religious. You're going to want to worship with the brothers and sisters. You're going to want to follow Jesus in the commandments. And there's a command to join the church, be baptized, be discipled, put yourself under the means of grace. All these things. Now, that's not the message, but I needed to clarify it. Now, there's a second uh, point that I want to address, or at least a second error that is very um, it's prominent in the church. I wouldn't say it's dominant, but it's definitely prominent. Uh, and that is this idea of legalism and liberalism when it comes to God's law and the use of it. And I'm going to use uh, the rich young ruler to sort of demonstrate the points as we move along in the sermon. Now, now brothers and sisters, there seems to be these two extremes that are prominent within the church. Now, how do these two extremes manifest themselves? Well, legalism manifests itself as a rigid obedience to the commandments of God, but not according to grace. It's not according to grace. That is, we all, as God's children, as Jesus just stated in John 15, have a relationship to the law of God, even in our redeemed state. 
But this is a relationship to the law that is graceless. That obedience doesn't flow from that saving grace of God from our hearts out into our lives. That is, the law is more of a burden to that individual. And that's why we see depression. That's why we see anxiety. That's why we see a lot of that in the church. And a lot of that stems and flows from people that are resting in their own righteousness and their own abilities. And they see the inconsistencies day in and day out, and it frustrates them. It flusters them. It causes them to go, woe is me. I'm just a, 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 a pitiful. I just can't do this. And they don't, they don't understand grace. And then there's the other extreme that has completely shunned the law of God, have completely thrown off the law of God. They said, well, Jesus has obeyed it, so now we have no relationship to the law. There's no compliance. There's nothing, we have nothing to do with the law of God whatsoever. And it's nothing more than, well, just, just open-ended um, antinomianism. There's no standard, there's no standards, there's no distinctions. It's just people doing what they want to do and calling it freedom. That's liberalism, so to speak. Well, first of all, let's address legalism. Uh, we need to understand, and the rich young ruler was guilty. As I stated, he was ignorant of salvation. He was ignorant of the Bible. I said he was ignorant of Scripture. Well, Particularly how, how was he ignorant of scripture? Well, he certainly did not understand the covenant of grace. He didn't understand the relationship that he had under the covenant of works and its failure in Adam. And now what was needed for him was to receive Christ and to bring himself into this covenant of grace whereby he would, what? Well, by faith... Worship, serve, loves God. All the while, what do we see from the rich young ruler? He's certainly dependent upon his performance. He comes and asks Jesus, hey, what else do I need to add to my duties? Is there anything I'm lacking? What else can I do in order for me to secure for myself eternal life. And Jesus, of course, rightly throws some commandments out there to him. And what does he do? Demonstrates he doesn't understand grace by saying, I've done all of this. Because that's not the response of grace. The response of grace is I failed at every one of these. That is the enlightened mind, the enlightened heart recognizing I can't keep your laws, God. The Bible tells us that to break the law of God in just one commandment is to break all of them. And that's what Jesus does when he, well, we'll look at it in a minute, but that's what Jesus does. He brings in another commandment that the rich young ruler fails to abide by, demonstrating again his bankruptcy, his failure. But let's look at some scripture to sort of support, well, to support what I'm saying. Let's we'll turn to Romans 3. 
These are not problems that is the problems that I'm talking about that exist within the body of the church as it's nothing new. It existed in Paul's day and he addressed it in many of his epistles and one clear place that he addressed it was in Romans. Was in Romans. Now you look right there at verse 19 in chapter 3. And what does Paul say? Now Paul talks about this universal condemnation of the world, the whole world, both Jew and Gentile. That's the whole world. Those two categories, the whole world fits into those two categories. But notice now Paul seems to be addressing this idea of, well, nomism or legalism. Paul again turns his attention because he wants to make sure that they understand it is not by the keeping of the law that one possesses eternal life, that one possesses the Lord of glory. And he says in verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now, Paul in verse 19 is talking about the covenant of works. All of mankind was under the law as a covenant to do what? For perfect obedience. For perfect obedience. Of which Adam and Eve were created to perform. They were able, they were created to do what? They were able to perform and keep that commandment. But they chose not to and they fell. And the whole human race fell in Adam. And so now what Paul is saying is the whole world lies under the condemnation of that covenant of works. Meaning that every person is judged by their deeds, their actions in accordance to that covenant. Now look at verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Stop. See, this is what the rich young ruler failed to understand. This is what Paul, Paul is saying. Listen, listen, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. How, why is this true? Because, beloved, once the law is broken, it's broke. It's broke. There's no going back and repairing it. Once you have fallen from perfection, you can't be perfect anymore. They had become polluted and corrupt in their imagination and hearts, Genesis 6. They have broken that perfect standard and now it's impossible to obtain the life promised by keeping the law. Once it's broken, you can't go back and, well, obey it. It's broken for good. And this is what Paul is saying Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Why? It remains a standard of perfection. And once that perfection is violated and broken, you can't go back and fix it. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 24. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The rich young ruler failed to understand this from the Old Testament. And it's clear from the Old Testament, they were unable to keep the law once it was broken. And look what, this, look what his ignorance produced. Look what his failure to understand the distinctions of law and gospel failed to produce in his life. He just became outwardly a religious zealot that did not possess eternal life. He's a failure. He, have, he has rigorously adjusted, modified his life, structured it in such a way that he can claim, I have kept these from my youth. Now think about the boldness of that comment. I don't think he's insincere at all. Remember, he walks away sad from Jesus. This is heartfelt. This is not virtue signaling. He's not there grandstanding like the parable that Jesus taught us up a few verses back. He's not grandstanding. He's sincere. So much so that even Matthew records that Jesus loved him. But to say I have kept this from my youth demonstrates, it demonstrates to us that his, the bankruptcy of his mind and his heart, the darkness, the ignorance, the hardness of it, he failed to understand and see the relationship of grace in his life. And it was a completely works and reward life. Performance. And brothers and sisters, I can assure you, I can attest to this, first of all, personally, and second of all, as a pastor, that if you believe that your eternal life is based upon your performance, you are going to be up and down, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be depressed, you're going to be all over the place as a person. There's going to be very little stability in your life because you're constantly well, what witnessing your own ups and downs, and you can only go where you are emotionally. Let me, tell, let me give you a personal testimony. I mean, as a Christian and as, as, as one that was brought to the Lord and in repentance and, and recognizing sinfulness and recognizing just the, the, the debauchery of, of life and and the things that needed to change in the way I, I, I viewed this world, the way I viewed everything. But I did not understand sanctification. I didn't understand the relationship I had with Jesus as a disciple. And so I was constantly up and down. I was constantly just begging, crying out to God. I mean, recognizing, in my, I mean, every day, every other month, recognizing I need to walk the aisle, I need to go down. I can't tell you how many times I walk the aisle, not in order to be saved, but to just confess my sins. 
And then I came to this book called, well, the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I remember reading the chapter on sanctification. I was, I was just amazed at the truth. I was so, listen, it was like being born again, again. Because the weights, the scales were falling off and I was like, wait a minute. The Lord is working on me, with me, to me, through me. He's using all of these things in my life. I am, I think I called two or three people and said, have you ever heard this before? Well, coming out of an Armenian background, right? Coming out of an Armenian mindset, and, and brothers and sisters, listen, there are plenty of Armenians out there that, that you can be saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost and saved and lost. And then there are others that go, well, you ought to be able to be saved and lost, but no, we're saved because God is good. But they don't know why. They don't know the mechanism. They don't understand God's grace. They're just saying, well, it doesn't make sense, so I'm just going to go with you. Once saved, always saved, but I don't have anything to back that up. And what do we see here? We see that the rich young ruler failed to truly grasp this concept of the covenant of grace. He, he remained in this performance-driven life out of the covenant of works. Now, we looked at Romans 3. Let's look at another passage in Romans. Let's turn to Romans 6. Now, I could read Romans 5. I won't do that just for the sake of time. I don't want to read another lengthy passage. But when I tell you that this was still an issue in the early church, I'm going to demonstrate it because Paul was very, very careful to set forth a right use of the law and a improper use of the law. The improper use of the law is a performance-driven life. That is, my salvation is based upon my performance. That's an improper use of the law. He addressed that. We just talked about it. But now he's going to talk about another improper use of the law, and that's just completely doing away with it, acting as if it's no longer of any value or use to your life. Notice what he said in, in chapter 6, verse 1, he's addressing this idea where grace, where some may think, okay, grace now has just usurped the law, and now it's just it's done away with. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, that's an argument that flows out of chapter 5, beginning at verse 18, where he talks about law and transgressions. Now, brothers and sisters, as we had already read, the law for the unbeliever points out sin. Points out sin. That's why we see Jesus rightly using the law of God in his engagement with the rich young ruler. 
What is he trying to do? I mean, he asked a valid question. What must I do to possess eternal life? Well, of course, Jesus is going to lead him to the answer. He wants to lead him. And what does he do? He begins showing the rich young ruler his heart by setting forth the commandments. Now, now you say, well, that, that seems ridiculous. It didn't work. He said he had performed those. But, well, if you got your Bibles open to Romans 7, I want to show you something here. I want to show you what even Paul, this is, this is what happened to Paul. It was how the law was used by the Spirit, what? To awaken him to his sin. Now, and Paul is arguing here in verse 7, that is Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Look at verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, brothers and sisters, nothing wrong with the law. The law sets forth what? A, a perfect, complete standard of righteousness. The problem is not the law. The problem is with us. The problem is once the law has been broken as a covenant, we are no longer able to perform that law, to do that law, to fulfill those obligations and responsibilities that is set forth in that law. Because once it's broken, it's broken. And to break one is to break them all. Turn to James chapter 2. I want you to see this with your own eyes. And again, here are, James is certainly addressing authority and is the same God who gave the law as a covenant at the beginning at creation. Well, it's the same God now in the covenant of grace that is certainly laying before us the duty to what? Believe, put our faith in Christ and to what? Walk after him, follow him. What? In obedience to his law. Go back to John 15. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality and are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Well, let's establish this truth. To break one commandment is to break them all. That's what James is saying here. Now, and now certainly James is also speaking to Christians here. These are believers. And believers still have a relationship to the law, but yet now that relationship to the law flows from grace. We're no longer under the covenant of that law or the terror of that law, but we are under that law as a rule of life. That we might know the will of God, that we might want to love God, because at the very essence, listen, what's at the very heart? What's the fulfillment? Look at verse 8. 
Now, this is the second table. If, however, you are fulfilling the what? Royal law. That's pretty high accolades, isn't it? According to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the law. That's a very good thing, isn't it? And those commandments were the ones that Jesus used with the rich young ruler. That he said, I have kept all of these from my youth. Notice what Jesus does, or James does here. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not uh, do, do not commit murder, but if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty, not the law of bondage, not the law of works, but the law of liberty. That is, the law, beloved, for the Christian is that in Christ, and it's a law of liberty. He has fulfilled it on our behalf. He has removed the condemnation and the thunder by his own obedience. And now we have a sweet, sweet relationship to the law of God. And that's why we could say along with David and others, oh, how I love thy law. It is as sweet as honey in the honeycomb. So you can't say that when the law is, well, the thunder and the judgment of God. You can't say that. But you can say it when you've been released and liberated from the bondage of that covenant to now be in the covenant of grace. We could go to Romans 4. We could talk about Abraham. And again, I think it's so important because I don't think, I think it's, we don't want to minimize the religiosity of the rich young ruler. We don't want to act as if he had everything sorted out and worked out. He didn't. He squarely did not understand the Bible. He did not understand his Old Testament. He didn't understand his father Abraham that Paul says was saved by faith. He didn't understand what was it that God was looking for as they come out of the uh, Exodus, as they come out of Egypt and they were going into the promised land? What was it that God required of them? Hebrews 4 says that they believed the gospel and put their faith in Christ who was to come. So this young man squarely did not understand Grace, he didn't understand the, the responsibility he had to forsake his own performance and rest squarely, wholly, and completely upon another, which was Jesus, who was promised in Genesis 3.15 to come, the one who would destroy the works of the devil. As we go back and we look at Luke 8, and this last point, and I think I've made a lot to do, a lot about those misunderstandings, but I don't think it's without 
cause, I think it's important for us to have this squarely figured out in our own minds. Why? Well, it's because we want to give God all the glory. If you are saved by your performance, then you've earned it. And God gets no glory. You've earned it. It's a work. You're being compensated. You're being rewarded. But if you have sinned and you've broken God's commandments, then it's by grace that you must come. Resting, believing, putting your faith in another, and that other is Jesus the Son of God, the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. It's the Savior of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's who the rich young ruler is engaged with. And he doesn't really realize it. He just sees him as a very excellent teacher, not a Savior. And as I went and demonstrated, I think, two sermons ago, what it, he had every right to identify him as better than the others through his preaching, through his doctrine, through his miracles, through his own life. There was his, he was impeccable. As the Bible tells us, there was no one that could bring an accusation, a real and true accusation against Jesus in any form and in any manner. That's what makes his trial so heinous. That's what makes his trial so heinous because beloved, oh, you cannot tolerate the conviction of the innocent. It is a terrible, terrible crime to convict the innocent as guilty. And we say all, we, we've seen what's happened to Israel. And look at our own nation. Look at our own nation. I guess that sermon's for this evening. So, beloved, another proof that the rich young ruler lacked grace. was that he didn't know who Jesus was. He just thought he was a good teacher. Knowing, and Jesus was a good teacher. But knowing things about Jesus won't save you. Knowing facts about Jesus will not save you. You can actually believe that Jesus really walked the earth. You can watch the History Channel and they can convince you that Jesus was real. If you don't trust your Bible. I don't need the History Channel to tell me that Jesus was real. I have this to tell me Jesus was real. Nevertheless, You can know all kinds of facts about Jesus. You can even believe that he came from God, like one of the prophets, special, anointed, and not be saved. 
A question for us as we look at the rich young ruler and his religiosity and the bankruptcy of it. Where do we fit in that? Do we fit into that? Are we guilty of that? Are we just guilty being satisfied knowing some things about Jesus and resting in that to save us? I hope not. Because you you have to go further than that. So you actually have to trust Jesus. You actually have to put your faith in Jesus to be that sacrifice, to be that that abiding uh, sacrifice acceptable in God's sight on your behalf. You have to believe in the covenant of grace that God made a covenant with Jesus as the head of the human race according to grace and that Jesus would lay down his life as a ransom for many, for all who put their faith and trust in him. You have to actually rest in that, beloved. If anyone were to ask you the question, why should God let you in to heaven? If you were to die today and you were to stand before God and you had that question, why should I let you in? I mean, what would you say? Would you be like the rich young ruler? Would you say, well, I performed a lot of good things. I was at church 90% of the time. I've read my Bible through 15 times and not begrudging that, not begrudging any of it. It's resting in it. It's trusting in it. Rather than saying, Lord, my entrance into eternity rests upon a perfect life. Now you're saying, Pastor, you're tricking me. You just said that we can't have a perfect life. You can't. Jesus does. And his life is my life by faith. How do I know I abide in Jesus? What did Jesus tell us in John 15? Abide in me is to abide in my word. To abide in my word. To abide in my word is to abide in the commandments. To abide in the commandments is to abide in the love of God. By grace. It's not a performance flowing from our own strength. It's a performance flowing out of the grace of God. Beloved, that's why our obedience flows out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. Praise be God who saved us by grace. Unworthy sinners who has given us a righteousness that is alien to ourselves and now it's ours, we possess it, it's ours by faith and now God has adopted us and brought us into his family, he has placed us at his table and now we're sons and daughters by grace. That's the motivation, beloved, of obedience. That's obedience, the motivation flows not from I'm going to earn something. It flows out of I could not do it in my own strength, but praise God that Jesus has given what he has commanded and now I serve him out of love. Love. Now how do you know that rich young ruler did not love Jesus and he didn't love God? 
How do we know? Because he walked away from the commandments. Notice what Jesus says. After the rich young ruler said in verse 21, I, all these things I have kept from my youth. I mean, I think we're to read that in, in pity. I think we're to read that in pity. And then Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What did Jesus do right there in verse 22? Well, he certainly recognized the delusion of the rich young ruler, his deception, his self-deception. He thought he was okay. I mean, he still had the, the, the uh, I guess, the, the urge that he m- was missing something, but yet nevertheless, when it, according to these commandments, he, he felt like, I'm fine. So now Jesus brings up James 2. See, now Jesus goes to the first commandment. You know the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, how did, Jesus, how did Jesus take him to the first commandment? By exposing his own idolatry. See, beloved, the things that we rest in are our God. The things we trust, they become our God. The things we love and that, that's that endearing love, we can't live without them. They are our God. They, they drive us, they, they motivate us, they, they beckon us to serve them. I mean, whether it's a job, whether it's children, whether it's family, marriage, church, whatever the case may be. And what Jesus does, Jesus says, well, okay, th- th- this is one thing you lack. You lack the true God as your God. And this seemed to resonate with the rich young ruler. And it's, I think it really did, it, it, it pierced his heart. Now, not in a spiritual sense. It didn't drive him to confess Jesus at this moment, uh, to be Lord and Savior and whatnot. But he says, one thing you lack. Listen to what he says. Sell all that you possess. So that's the first thing. Jesus begins to address his real God. Your God is money. Why? Because you put your trust in it. Your, your, your trust is in money. He trusted his money for security. It was a security to him. His identity, if you will. Then notice what he said. And distribute it to the poor. That's the second table of the law. First of all, he points out that he's bankrupt on the first table, first commandment. He showed him who this God really was, and that was money. The second thing he did was, well, you really haven't kept those commandments because what's the essence of those commandments? What did we learn from James? What's the essence of those commandments? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here we have a positive commandment. Jesus is telling this particular individual, not you, 
this particular individual, okay, here's what I tell you to do. First of all, I'm going to show you who your God is. Second of all, I'm going to show you you haven't kept these commandments because if you, if you have kept these commandments, then you would be, have no problem of, of selling your stuff and distributing it to the poor. Why? Because what's the essence of the second table? Love. Love for neighbor. Now, Jesus is really, I don't want to use this word. How do you say? Jesus is really showing him who, what his real heart is here. And notice what Jesus says after that. And you shall have treasure in heaven. Now let's tie it all together. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you really want everlasting life. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Have God as your God. If you have God as your God, then you're going to see me in a different light. You're going to follow me as Lord and Christ and come follow me. Come be my disciple. Come learn of me. He just completely took this young man to spiritual school to show him his bankruptcy. His bankruptcy toward God and his bankruptcy toward the people in his life that he said he has been serving. And then he demonstrated that he really didn't think Jesus was a good teacher. I mean, again, I think he did at first. But what but what's Jesus saying? If you truly believe these things, come follow me. Go do these things. Come follow me. He wasn't willing to, to pay the price of discipleship. Meaning this, beloved, we go back to the liberalism. And I will end with this because I've taken up a lot of time for this morning. But listen to this. Lordship. Lordship. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord and Savior. And, and, and this is another concept that has, that has been bred in the church. And there's this, these people like, well, he's just my Savior. He's, well, he's Lord and Savior. He not only saves you, but he also commands you. He also instructs you. He also teaches you. He also leads you. He also guides you. Corrects you. Strengthens all of these things. I remember being in Bible college and having these discussions in class, whether Jesus, whether you could be saved and have Jesus just a savior or did you need him as Lord? And it was just, even to this day, I just remember saying, yeah, but the Bible says he's Lord. You, you can't take half of Jesus. You can't take a third, the third you like. Remember what I said last week? The accommodations people want to make for themselves, the preferences they want to keep, they don't want to give up their preferences. They want Jesus, but they want all these other stuff too. That's not salvation. That's why Jesus said, listen, it's total, it's complete, it's everything. Come do this, get rid of your idolatry, repent of it, and come and follow me. And beloved, listen. 
I want to spend next week talking about the relationship of law and gospel. Just to put a, a period on this portion of our lesson. But I'll leave you with this. Brothers and sisters, the only way to secure heaven is a righteous life. The question is, are you going to trust in your own righteousness? Are you going to trust in the righteousness of another? And his name is Jesus. What does the book of Acts teach us? That there is no other name given among men under heaven by which men must be saved. No other name. If we are, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we will align ourselves with these commandments. We'll love God, love one another. And we'll submit. We'll submit. What the cost of discipleship can be costly. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, we recognize that we have looked at this passage from various angles, Lord, and, and seeing this, the bankruptcy of this young man is heartbreaking. And Lord, it continues to be heartbreaking when we see others around us, Lord, trusting in their own righteousness, trusting in their own works. Lord, displaying these proofs of just being spiritually dead like this rich young man. Oh, Father, I pray that we would look deeply into this and we would consider and ponder ourselves, Lord, who do we trust? Who are we believing in? Where is our faith? What's the object of our faith? And Lord, I pray that we would rise up and see the glory that has been given to us in Christ, the grace that we have and the liberty we have now to have a, a wonderful relationship with the commandments of God in Christ. Lord, it's not thunder and lightning. It's sweet and gracious. That's why James called it liberty, the law of liberty. Oh, Father, come and bless us with these truths. Seal it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.